0: To systematically your weekly theology podcast. I'm John Heaps. I'm talking to you from Austin, Texas, once again, after our sojourn in Wisconsin. Uh, I'm here, mediated by digital communications technology, with the gang. Say hi, gang. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good night. Hey. Hello. Uh, We are going to talk about the much pilloried fact value distinction today. But before we do that, we came to the realization that last week when we asked our guests, we had a guest last week, by the way, if you want to give that a listen. It was um, great. It was really great. Uh, and we're looking forward to having more guests in the future. And we want to ask them not just three questions like we did last week, but four. One question for each of your hosts. So, hey, Brian Bajek, can we get a guest intro question to go through this week? I will happily provide one, yes. Uh, my
1: question is... Which album, uh, whether LP or EP, the choice is yours, had the most formative impact or influence upon who you are currently as a person? And uh, true to our usual ordering, I will give that question to Robin Bure first. So, Robin, the floor is yours.
2: All right. Well, um, most formative. Well, I I should preface this by saying that um, my father only listens to classical music, uh, preferring like organ. Not out of some like, oh, classical music is better than other music, but just legitimately, it's what he enjoys. And he's a man who knows what he likes, and you know, uh, likes what he knows. And um, and so, my and then the radio in our house was like like strict CBC Radio One. For those of you who are American, I guess that's kind of like. Basically, like, a steady diet of NPR.
1: Yeah, it's, it's similar.
2: Except, like, it's owned by the government, so it's probably terrible or something. Um, but there's no advertisements, so, uh, or advertisements, um, uh, if you prefer that, which was really great. Anyways, long story short, my, and my exposure to music was uh, fairly limited to my mother's record collection. Which had such treasures as the Nylons, one size fits all, um, some like original like Keith Green, no compromise.
0: Oh man, and, I listened to so much of my parents' Keith Green albums.
2: Oh man, like those are good times. But I think if I had to choose a most formative one, it would have to be a lovely little album my mom had, which was the King's Singers sing Flanders and Swan and Noel Coward. Um. Are you laughing at me, John? John Everyone is laughing at me. That,
3: as your answer wrong. <laughs> You're
1: surprising. <laughs> Do you have to be so on the nose.
2: And and the great thing about it, of course, um, Noel Coward and Flatters <laughs> and Swan being like, com, like 1960s British comedy singers. Um, and uh, anyways, uh, the songs, they're so useful for everyday life. Like there's uh, The Gas Man Cometh, which is all about like... <laughs>
1: I'm glad I started with.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just like it's like about the endless like stream of repairmen you need to come to your house. Which, like, as I get older and like my dishwasher started leaking leaking last night, like you know, um, it's really, or every time I go for a walk midday, I just uh, suddenly into my head pops the song "Mad Dogs and Englishmen" go out in the midday sun. Um, and of course, the eminently useful for all life situations. Null Coward's classic. There are bad times just around the corner.
1: Wow. Uh, I don't so, even know I, who I, I am that, anymore.
2: <laughs> I would say that rarely a day goes by where I don't have one of these songs like running through my head. So, um,
3: <laughs> All due respect to Trent Reznor, I think we found some new uh, intro-outro music. Man,
0: no kidding. <laughs> you might just have to take musical breaks. Just have an intermission. <laughs> People can go get a cup of tea. <laughs>
1: I, I, you've opened a whole new world to me, Robin.
0: (laughs) Not unlike God. I feel like I understand you better now and you are also a deeper mystery. (laughs) Both at the same time.
2: (laughs) Excellent. Well, moving on. Who's next?
0: (laughs) (laughs) And mine is so much more boring. Uh, I I remember, uh, boy, it must've been my freshman year of high school. Um, being in it might have been sophomore year, being in the English teacher not the English the American history teachers classroom after school, kind of hanging out um with some theater people who were kind of my that was kind of my crowd then. And they put on the new tool record and it was when Lateralis came out. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, and I, I had heard a little bit, I had heard some, some stuff off of Anima before and had like a little bit of an interest, but I was still, I was still sort of working my way out of a sojourn in the um, CCM wilderness, uh, off air. We were talking a little bit about, we were, uh, we were definitely a focus on the family household for a while there until my sister and I just said uh, we'd had quite enough of it. Um, and, you know, it was as long an album as you can fit on a CD. Almost every song was more than seven or eight minutes. Uh, it had a thematic coherence so that you could put it on and listen to it from front to back. Uh, and there was just something about the, the, the sort of mix of indulgent uh, prog rock, sort of musical prolixity with... Uh, the kind of not, uh, sort of unified album coherence that uh, really set my musical tastes for the uh, ensuing couple of decades. Um, and so that's still, that's still a thing where it, if I can't put an album on and really listen to it from the first track to the last track, I, I kind of lose interest. Um, and I, that owes entirely to Lateralis.
2: Yeah. But does it have a song that is an ode to taking a bath?
0: It does not.
2: That, in- that includes the uh, lines. Maynard
0: doesn't take baths, I, I was just no. about to make
1: that joke. <laughs> then yeah. the
2: loathing for my fellows rises steaming from my brain in the bath and condenses to the milk of human kindness once again in the bath.
0: I am profoundly wow.
1: uncomfortable with that sentence.
0: Yeah, it's, um Maynard has written some odes to many things, and baths, not one of them.
2: Sloths, slow trains, I mean... Disappointing.
0: I still don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> Brian. Uh,
3: so again, probably won't surprise anybody, but um, probably similarly uh, scheduled eighth grade ish. Um, I listened to uh, Weezer's Pinkerton and then didn't stop for 10 years. Um and, you know, anyone who's ever listened to it knows why. And uh, everyone sort of appreciates the uh, sort of formative influence it had on, on late 90s and, and early aughts uh, alt rock. And, uh, yeah, it, d- it doesn't really need a whole lot more exposition than that to, to, to justify my choice.
1: That is a, a fantastic segue into mine, talking about uh, early aughts alt-rock and uh, the approximately eighth grade period when I asked this question I had a very precise album in mind and I realize now uh, that as I'm looking at my record collection there is a giant and very prominent uh, bright eyes box set which is on the one side because it's too heavy to put in the rest of the vinyl Uh, within that box set is the album I'm wide awake it's morning which came out, I believe it would have been 2003. But uh, someone can fact check that for me. It's either 2003 or four. And I listened to it and hated it on first listen when I was in the summer between uh, seventh grade and eighth grade. And then I, I only realized years later what actually turned me around to it, aside from what I think is still to this day, I unironically think is very good lyrical content. Uh, were Emmylou Harris's harmonies. And I developed a somewhat probably unhealthy obsession with that album. And only years later realized that it was because she had such a crazy good voice and sang at intervals harmonically that I I had not yet really been exposed to on songs like Landlocked Blues, for, uh, for example, which is still maybe my favorite song. So, yeah, Brian Brian was an angsty eighth grader. And, yeah, that trend continued for a while.
2: My copy of that album says 2005.
1: 2005?
2: But I did not discover it until after I met Neil, who introduced me to that entire world of, like, alt rock that I missed.
1: God Uh, bless that beautiful bearded man.
2: Right? Exactly.
0: Uh. I I I confessed to you. I think it's CTSa uh, after a a few G and Ts that I have just no love, none for Bright Eyes.
1: Yeah, you don't like the Connor Oberst. And as I'm thinking about it, I think it was actually the summer between eighth grade and freshman year. So you may have you may have bested me there chronologically. I don't even know myself as well as (laughs) you know me, Robin.
2: Damn. I'm really glad, John. You didn't say that you had no time for Emmy Lou Harris because I think that oh, would have no. been like the rift that divided this. <laughs> but
0: that damn Graham Parsons. Oh. No, no, no. That's that would be an impiety no one should countenance.
2: Yeah, you're uh, in Texas. Like you'll get people on your lawn. I'm pretty sure uh, <laughs>
0: they'll they'll find out. <clears throat> no, Emily Lou Harris is a delight. For the record, all right. Uh, let's let's get down to business here, uh, Robin. You pitched this topic of the fact value distinction. Uh, so why?
2: Oh, that's, <laughs> that's always an excellent question. Um, I mean, a lot of it just has to do with the fact that I've been reading a ton um, lately, and there's two passages that kind of, there's one from Oliver O'Donovan's first volume of Ethics as Theology, which is called Self, World, and Time which now is a few years old. I think it came out in 2013 um, for the show notes there, Brian.
1: Yep, uh, written it down.
2: <laughs> and um, I think he's got all three. It's a, I think it's a three volume. Uh, it, it might become an increasingly ill-named trilogy. I'm not entirely sure uh, in more than three parts. But for now, it's three. Um, and it's been kind of floating around my head, but I haven't had time to think about it. And then I was reading um, Patrick Byrne's book, *The Ethics of Discernment*, uh, to prepare for the conference last week, and it kind of brought this all back to mind. And I thought I would just read those two passages to you guys and um, set free a discussion. So, uh, what O'Donovan has to say is he's talking about David Hume, and um, of course, who doesn't? <clears throat> and the falling out between fact and value, and he says. This. Um, Let's see. Uh, There is some ground to it, for we have seen how Hume tried to shrink the term reason to facts and relations, driving a wedge between the reasonable judgments of fact and the passions on which action depends. Yet the development is more complex than the agreed story suggests. It turns on the ambiguous nature of the early 18th century project of turning Newtonian principles of observation and analysis back on human behavior. Hume was heir to the hopes vested in Pope's project of studying mankind. He thought that consistent correlations could be traced between reason and passion, sufficient to found a morality which, though functionalist, should be enough to elicit the reverence of thoughtful men. The clouds of natural law still scudded across the bright rationalist sky of this new moral science. His 20th century interpreters have seized upon a famous paragraph in the Treaties of Human Nature where Hume commented ironically on the failure of moral writers to explain the transition from is to ought. This they have understood as a direct avowal of the fact-value divide. But it is far from clear that Hume's irony was intended to suggest that the transition was altogether impossible to explain, and more probable that he meant us to understand that he himself was the first to offer a successful explanation of it. And among the statements referred to as formed with the verb is, he must surely have included some judgments of value which exceeded the limits of facts and relations. For example, he says courage is a virtue. Almost all his own moral judgments are in fact formed this this way. The is-ought transition then is probably not from fact to value, but from value to obligation. What concerned Hume at this point was that classical thinkers knew, what classical thinkers knew as the question of the good and the right. So that's what O'Donovan has to say. And then Byrne has to say this. um, I am in fundamental agreement with this emphatic claim that ethical precepts cannot be derived from knowledge of fact, i.e. the is-ought divide. However, the relationship between knowledge of facts and knowledge of values is more complex than has been commonly assumed. The common understandings of this relationship rest upon assumptions about the nature of factual knowledge, assumptions that are ultimately untenable. So I don't, I don't want to have a discussion here about essentially whether O'Donovan's reading of Hume is correct. You know what I mean? Like we don't have to have a, I don't want to have a debate about um, Hume. But it was interesting, basically, that um, I will say that O'Donovan's suggestion that Hume seems to suggest a transition, like that he's the first to offer this transition, I think makes sense in light of the fact that, um, basically, Hume posits this idea of causal necessity which isn't necessity as it was classically thought of, but intelligible causal connection. And he thought that you could move the intelligible causal connection that happens in the natural world and apply it to um, human motives and behavior. So I think there's something to it. But um, Byrne, of course, is really concerned with that discussion of like human motives and behaviors and probably also intelligible causal connection, I think. Although he, like I said, he says he's in fundamental agreement with with the fact that ethical precepts cannot be derived from knowledge of facts. Um, anyways, and so I thought I would just kind of spin that loose. Some of you guys know Byrne. He's working, of course, off of Lonergan's project, so um, uh, he has a, his own ideas about how to bridge the fact-value divide, as it were. Um, and actually in a way that overlaps with Hume at least in some points, because Byrne has apprehensions. Like, he talks about apprehensions of value which come before knowledge of value which are are found in the feelings um yeah so I just wanted to kind of set that question loose of a discussion of how you know Byrne and Lonergan and other ideas people have about this divide and bridging it
0: I mean the the the
3: sort of the first move that somebody like Lonergan or somebody like Pat Byrne is going to make there, right, is to say, um, that the, the, the sort of fatal flaw embedded within an approach like Hume's, um, is, is not, is not in the first instance about the fact value distinction per se, but, but about, um, the inadequacy of the philosophy of knowing at all. And so, um, you know, Byrne's going to want to um, make sure we first get straight uh, and get clear about w- what it means to have uh, knowledge of facts, uh, what it means to make a judgment of fact. Um, and of course, uh, drawing on Lonergan, he's going to have a very sophisticated. Uh, theory of cognition that uh is going to be the answer to that. That's going to that's going to be an indictment in some respects, many in fact, of the the um the assumptions about uh factual knowing in a person or a
0: thinker like Hume. Let me let me uh, rattle through that in Lonergan really quick, because I just I was just teaching cognitional structure, which is an essay in collection. It's pretty short. And Lonergan sort of uh, gets down to brass tacks about what his his theory of of knowledge is. So in, in cognitional structure, he says, and I'm gonna kind of do it backwards from the way that he does it in the essay, but you should check it out. Look, empiricism, uh, idealism, and rationalism are all correct in the insofar as they emphasize respectively Experience, uh, intelligible coherence, and uh, the rules of valid, um, <clears throat> the rules of valid inference about matters of fact. Um. What's what's incorrect in them? What's mistaken is the elevation of those elements to the totality of what knowing is. So the empiricist holds up uh, the the relative immediacy of experience as the measure of what knowing is. The idealist holds up the intelligible coherence of ideas for what knowing is, and the rationalist holds up the the rules and structures of valid inference. Um, And the point in Cognitional Structure is that knowing is a formally dynamic structure. Now, what does that mean? Uh, A structure is a whole in which the parts uh, have their identity as parts by virtue of their internal relationships to one another and to the whole. So you can think of an arch, right? If you, if you take one of the stones out of an arch, you don't have an arch anymore because all the rocks fall into a pile. And then you have a hole, right? You have the whole pile, but you don't have a structure anymore. And if you, have a, if you have an arch and you put one more block on top of it, the one more block is superfluous. It's not a part of the structure. You don't need it. Um, it's irrelevant. Now, that's a static structure. A dynamic structure is a structure made up of activities. So think of a dance, a song, what have you? Um, and the parts of the structure have their identity by virtue of the relationships internal to the the whole, but the parts aren't aren't uh, objects; they're acts. Now you can, in, in most of those examples, a song, a dance, play, the activities, or let me put it this way: the the dynamic structure is materially dynamic. Because the activities constitute, they make up the parts of the structure. But in a formally dynamic structure, which is what Lonergan thinks knowing is, the activities that are at once the parts of the structure are also uh, that by which, there's some principle moving through them by which the structure assembles itself. So it's a formally dynamic structure in that it forms itself. And knowing uh, knowing is this kind of structure where one's questions about one's experience give rise to insights understandings answers to those questions the uh, effort to get clear about what you've understood produces concepts Uh, one these concepts because they have an imagistic or symbolic element can themselves be the object of inquiry except this inquiry is a different kind um it's a reflective inquiry about the correctness of your answers to your questions, to your insights uh, or uh, the correctness of your insights, of your understanding. Um, and then the kind of answer that answers questions for reflection uh, are questions, are judgments they their, their uh, assertions of matters of fact. Yes, my answer is correct. No, my answer is false. Uh, and because Lonergan says, questions always intend, have as their object, being, both questions for intelligence and uh, questions of fact, questions for judgment, uh, when you are able to ascertain that your answer to your question, your insight, is in fact correct, you know being, you know reality. And more than that, and Lonergan doesn't quite get here in Cognitional Structure, you have to go look at um, some sections in Insight where he talks about, uh, about judgments, but and specifically where he talks about objectivity. Because questions are not about being in its totality, but about some, uh, well, they, they take what Lonergan calls an abstractive viewpoint. Their question, the questions are about something they're about some determinate something right they're about this experience and the intelligibility imminent in this experience the the being that you know the the reality that you know in a true judgment is um we might say it's factual and that it's uh it it's distinct and determinate that you don't know all of being you don't know all of reality but you do know that uh, the answer to your question really is so um and so, and so in that way, true judgments are judgments of fact. They're judgments about what is, not the totality of what is, but what is found in the experience into which you're inquiring. Uh, that's probably enough on that. But, but that's the sort of basic position in Lonergan on judgments of fact. The, the
1: one addendum that I would add, and I completely agree with all of that, is... Uh, those discrete judgments are always going to be open to further relevant questions, which is part of the point, actually. It's the, there isn't a totalization, as John uh, very accurately put, in terms of either knowing the totality of being, uh, the entire scope of what is, or even relative to any discrete, concrete judgment, uh, delimiting all possible, actually just all possibilities relative to uh, a particular um but as the independent of uh the exhaustion of further relevant questions you can still uh speak forth it is so or it is not so
2: so so well um, one of the responses to the hume humian problem which i think most of the time people don't read hume i think they just <laughs> hume, i don't know why hume gets like a like a reputation as being like the skeptic skeptic. Like, I mean, he's actually a pretty reasonable middle of the road guy. He spends most of the time being like, whoa, Hobbes! like calm down, buddy, like get treatment for your bad di- indigestion or whatever makes you so unhappy. <clears throat>
0: Ho- Hobbes famous dyspeptic.
2: <laughs> I mean, he's like, he's gotta be, I mean, here I'm like paraphrasing Hume, of course. I, I don't think he actually makes a reference to Hobbs as a digestive system. But anyways, um, either way pe- people take Hume and it's quicker to not read him and just run with him. And so you get a lot of responses to just the general problem of fact value. And, you know, anyways, one of these general responses that really was quite popular in the middle of the 20th century, um, which I think is, is fundamentally right, but probably incomplete. Um, is, is the idea that descriptions, so those assertions of matter of fact, because of the language we use when we assert matter of fact, they contain moral judgments in them. So like Julius Covesi, so um, Philippa Foote, Elizabeth Anscombe, like these are people who are going to be associated with this. They take the work, actually, the time, I can't remember the timeline. Julius Covesi has a whole book on this. I think actually it came a little bit after but. Um, but he devotes an entire book to it basically saying, look, that there are these things called notions. And what he means by notions is not a Lonerganian idea of notion um, at all, because Lonergan likes to take words and repurpose them for very specific things. Um, anyways, we have we have these notions and, and of of things, like a table, right? Well, what is a table? Well, it we have notions of a table. There's the material elements, right? flat top, one leg, four legs, three legs, but they actually kind of, those formal elements vary. And what makes it a table is, is not only, sorry, the material elements vary. It's not only these material elements, but also formal elements, right? That, um, that we know it's a table partly because we use it as a table. So a table has kind of various material elements, can have one leg, four legs, three legs. We, but we know it's a table because, well, it's, it's usable as a table, um, essentially that, that we have these, we bring material elements together in formal notions that we name. And he kind of says that moral language is the same. So when we ascertain facts, especially about moral situations, the fact itself already has a moral evaluation in it. Um, and these can vary from degrees of like openness and closeness, but think of, of, of an assertion that, the fact of my action was murder, right? Murder in of itself is not a neutral description of fact, but rather a, a, a moral evaluation. So, um, and and if and, and if that doesn't make sense, think about what like what it would be like if kind of a bunch of vegans ran around with signs that said "meat is killing." You know, it's it doesn't have. It's kind of like. Yeah. It doesn't have alliteration for one thing.
1: Morrissey does like alliteration,
2: but it also—it's kind of like you kind of just—it a, a little bit perplexing. You're like, yes, that's an interesting like, it's a statement of fact. Like meat, noted. of course, meat involved. Noted, no, meat involves killing, but saying meat is murder has a strong moral component to it, right? So that when we when we make these judgments, when we make assertions of matter of fact, those matters of fact contain moral evaluation in them um, and i think that they're, they're foundation i think that they're functionally right about this i think that this is how language works for us um, but they never go beyond language like in this right it's kind of like well this is how it is and no real question of kind of well why are these assertions of matter of fact like why does our moral language, like why does our assertions about, why is this overlap essentially between um, fact and value kind of in our language itself? And they kind of never get below it. it, it this is kind of enough for them to work for moral valuation. So um, like you've there's, called-
0: a, there's, a, there's a version of that too that happens um, in a more metaphysical mode um, where you'll get uh, a kind of direct realist account where uh, people reject the fact-value distinction because of um, the transcendentals of being. Right. They'll say that uh, because both uh, because both being and the good, being and good are transcendentals, um, they are coterminous. And so in being, uh, you can't separate them. Right. Anything that is, is good. And to the extent that it is, it is good. Um, now, and that will often be put forward on the basis of um, a kind of uh, non-discursive, I'm searching forwards a little bit, a kind of non-discursive first principle of thought. Um, I'm not totally convinced by that. Um, I think there's a kind of metaphysical intuition that that is the case. Um, and to assert that into, and I think it's a, actually think it's a correct intuition, but I, I, I sense that it's not actually a non, a a non-discursive first principle of thought. Um, but rather it's something that could be put to the critical test. Um, that, that you, you actually do have to, uh, do a kind of inquiry and come to a judgment about it. Um, and, uh, and so, again, I think there's a sort of similar problem on the other end, right? So not just to, to only do it at the level of moral language, but to also do it at the, at the sort of level of metaphysical principles of thought uh, occludes um, something more concrete that's going on in uh, the subjects who make evaluations uh, and the communities that they're a part of and the, the discourse that they participate in um, that's, that's generative. Right? That, that it's not just data, it's not just given, but it's, it's generated in a process. And because it's a process, you can investigate it and understand it and uh, come to judgments about it. Um, so I think, I think the, question it, the question is well-founded, both uh, at the sort of level of moral language, but also uh, in terms of the metaphysics of value as well.
1: And, and I think that uh, the way you utilized Cognitional Structure, the essay, and Cognitional Structure as Lonergan would present it at the beginning of the discussion, John, prioritized question asking in such a way that uh, the transcendentals aren't precluded, but uh, what Lonergan would call the transcendental injunctions, uh, be attentive, be intelligent, be reasonable, be responsible, and ultimately be loving, be in love. Uh, Order or at least ought to order our question asking in such a way that the right type of question will delineate the, uh, the sort of preciseness with which you just expressed the, uh, the, the type of preciseness that you just expressed the need for relative to that, uh, the interplay of goodness and truth or goodness and being. Oh.
0: Uh, go ahead, Robin.
2: Oh. So no, if you uh, go ahead and respond to that, because then I want to go somewhere next. Different oh, okay.
0: Next. Um, so, and and one of the the you know in in Lonergan's account of judgments of fact, um, you know, one of the objections that inevitably comes up when you teach Lonergan's account of judgments of fact is okay, that's that sounds good, um, but like, is it possible, right? Can, can, can you actually successfully complete uh, the, the enactment of this structure? And uh, Lonergan's response to this is uh, fairly simple and slightly annoying. He says, well, how do you know if judgments of fact are possible? And in good Aristotelian fashion, the answer is, well, are, are any of them actual? And the way you can test that is by asking yourself the question, are true judgments possible? Because if you answer no, the content of your answer seems to be at odds with your performance. Right? You seem to have made it. You seem to be making a judgment and asserting uh, its its factuality. Um, and if you uh, more correctly answer yes, true judgments are possible. And someone says, "How do you know?" You say, "Because I just made one." Um, now, this is admittedly super annoying.
3: Uh, there's a there's a, there's another way of phrasing the objection, though. Yep. Um, I mean, that would be a more classical form of the objection, which is going to run into that retortion structure every time. But it seems to me you can also ask a more, um, more you can raise a more postmodern objection. Great. Which is simply not, it's, it's not actually going to um, give you an answer one way or the other. It's not going to say yes or no to the question, are judgments of fact possible? but is going to make a further assertion on the basis of deferral um, ab- about the sort of um, cascading context of meaning that would have to be ascertained in order to answer the question one way or the other um, and, and sort of uh, forever keep dilating the, uh, the horizon of context such that an answer of any
0: kind is going to be impossible. Yeah, so Merrill Westfall does this in... Um, yeah. In his short little book, uh, Whose Community, Which Interpretation? I, I believe was, that is the title, uh, yeah. Um, he calls himself a, a Kantian anti realist. Um, and there's a certain radicalization of recur in that text um, where he, he essentially asserts that in order to know anything, uh, in order to come to any particular true judgment, you have to know everything. And he bases this on the, the hermeneutic circle. He bases it on the idea that um, there's always, because uh, there's always a kind of dialectical vacillation back and forth between the whole of a text is the metaphor being used and its parts, sentences, words, paragraphs, what have you. Um, And that that in order to come to uh, a a kind of certain judgment, uh, let's let's even just say just a true judgment about the meaning of any particular sentence in a text, there's needed um, the sort of slow back and forth movement between your intention of what the whole of the of the text means and what any given part means and you can't come to the meaning of the whole unless you have apprehended the meaning of the parts but you can't know for sure what the meaning of the parts is till you read the whole book yep. um this metaphor is then transferred over to reality um that to, to make a true judgment about any particular thing you would need um knowledge of uh, everything about everything um
2: Well, I'm set then.
0: (laughs) Ready to go. Just (laughs) ask Robin. But but I
3: mean, so so Lonergan's answer to this, right, is different than than the retortion argument that he's going to make to uh, a realist. Um, Because Lonergan's argument here is going to revert back to what makes the structure self-assembling, which is the spontaneity of inquiry. That uh, questions keep emerging in you, um, not because you push the question button in your brain, but because there's some, there's some sort of force, there's some kind of dynamism, some kind of light um, that shines in such a way that the questions emerge seemingly on their own. And uh, some of those questions are very pertinent <laughs> to the matter at hand. Um, and uh, when you get answers to those questions, other relevant questions emerge that also pertain to the matter at hand in a direct and relevant way Um, where the canon of relevance here is, do the answers actually shed any kind of light on the known unknown that you're trying to grasp? And that canon of relevance keeps operating as you ask questions. And by, by continuing to ask those questions, you develop something like a context, uh, a sort of uh, a domain of inquiry in which the questions asked within it uh, are actually really important for understanding the matter at hand. And questions that are too far uh, removed from that context might be be perfectly good questions on their own, but they don't actually uh, tell you anything relevant about the thing you're trying to understand. And so the, 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 the interrogative performance of inquiry is the actual means by which uh, the relevant context for a, for a, a particular determination within being uh, is established. It's not established externally. It's established through the dynamism of inquiry itself. And so you, can, you, you don't have to do the deferral of difference forever because um, depending on, on uh, how far you follow the trace, you might find a bunch of stuff that might be interesting, but it's actually not really important or relevant to the question that's really at hand. And so, it's a different response than the response to um, to the retortion argument you would have if you answered no to the to the possibility of ju- of a judgment of fact.
0: Though, though they're both um, they're both sort of uh, aristotel- broadly Aristotelian in approach, insofar so far as they rest on the assertion of the um, the priority of actuality to possibility, indeed. Right. So, so Westfall's argument and arguments of its kind uh, are, are ironically rationalist arguments, right? They proceed on the sort of logical consequence of possible conditions, um, whereas what, what Lonergan wants you to do is attend to what actually occurs um, and derive your account of possibility from what is what is in fact uh, going on. Um, I'm going to let Robin go at her question there because before, because at some, but at some point I want to come back to um, what it means to say that coming to knowledge of fact is an activity um, because I think that has some bearing on this question as well, but I want to let Robin get back to what she was going to talk about.
2: Yeah. So there's, there's two things kind of um, I mean, we've been talking this entire time about judgments of fact. um, And I do want to get to some discussion about how those are related to judgments of value. It's like for Byrne, right he'll talk about um, intermediate between judgments of facts and judgments of value lie apprehensions of value and such apprehensions are given in feelings feelings of course not just being like kind of random emotions but feelings as intentional responses which is i mean again like this is a huge amount of what hume has to say right he's kind of like look we have a disposition as people towards pain and pleasure we have familial and friendly interdependence in relationships and we essentially in in the context of those we approve and disapprove of of actions and those in turn kind of influence our feelings about them um but so i want to talk like so i kind of want to move like to from we've talked about a lot about judgment of facts but how you know how does laundering and how does burn how do they get to judgments of value and 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 this just and especially feelings seem to play a huge role in this um and then i just want to note that when Byrne brings up the fact-value distinction. He doesn't actually bring up Hume. He brings up Weber. And I just don't know Weber. And I'm not sure if Weber's kind of articulation of this fact-value distinction is more applicable to the the question of, like, feelings. Or I know, Ryan, you know a bit more about this than I do. So I'm not sure if that's even helpful to add to the discussion, or we can just skirt over that to talk about values. Um... Yeah, I just I kind of want I mean,
3: the way the way that Weber often gets brought into the discussion. Um, so so I'll give an example. So uh, um, ethicists or or theologians or philosophers who try to sort of um, talk about political economy, for instance, um, they they're often critical and, and in, in invoking Weber in order to do this of a view of economics where uh, economics is just about the f- sort of raw facticity of exchange, um, where, where fact and value are separated almost ontologically, such that you can, you can do an analysis of, of, of the dynamic the governing dynamics of human exchange and leave questions about justice out of the analysis entirely and not lose anything in the process because it's not just a methodological distinction between fact and value but a kind of ontological chasm between them and once you once you sort of uh grasp the 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 raw fact of a particular thing you can ask uh other questions about about um its value or disvalue um but those those questions are going to be sort of formally independent of any questions that might that might um pertain to its its fact
2: oh this makes so much sense because i mean that's essentially analytic ethics in the 20th century like hair or someone right like you you can a value is like a discussion you completely add on from the outside but it's actually like you can it now whether or not that's that's actually favor,
3: i
0: cannot say
2: (laughs) yeah (laughs) fair enough um okay
0: so lonergan has a line in uh the topics in education lectures where he talks about uh, one of the things that can ail modern society is that uh, technical possibility can settle all matters. Yeah. Um, that, that whether or not I would do something is settled entirely by, uh, can, we, can we pull it off? Um, and, and that... Um, so, so, so let's, let's think then about the difference between what Lonergan calls judgments of fact and judgments of value. Um, because, in it was, actually, let's leave judgment of value off for a second, because that's a little bit more of a different, different question. Let's talk about um, decisions. So, judgments of fact and decisions, um, at least in insight, and he changes this a little bit when you get to method and theology and some other texts, but at least in insight, when you come to a judgment of fact, It's because you've apprehended that you have some conditioned, determinate, contingent um, intelligibility, and you've apprehended that its conditions have been met. And so you have what he calls a virtually unconditioned, right? It's not absolutely unconditioned. Only God is absolutely unconditioned. You have some conditioned, contingent something, and you've apprehended that its conditions have been met. And so if A, then B, but A, therefore B. Uh, And so you know. and that's and that's where Lonergan can write, can be affirming of a of a, a certain uh, of rationalism as an element in, in knowing right that you need to make a valid inference about the relationship between a conditioned and its conditions and once you've done that you you have what he calls an invulnerable uh, insight but when you are doing deliberation towards a decision the conditioned doesn't have all of its conditions fulfilled yet Because one of its conditions is that you decide and then act on your decision. Um, And so you can't come to the same kind of intellectual apprehension with regard to it, right? You can't come to a virtually unconditioned um, because you're the one holding on to one of the conditions as to whether it's going to be met or not, Um, which gets into a whole other discussion about human freedom as related to its its products and the way in which the sort of liberty of human agency to say yes or no to courses of action is really part of the explanation of those actions. That's a whole other thing we could talk about another day. Um,
2: but instead, I, we're going to talk about judgments of value, right?
0: Right. We're but, going to talk about judgments of value. Can, but can we put right,
3: a, a put a finer point here on the transition, though? Okay. The the reason that that we've been spending the bulk of this time talking about judgments of fact is is because the the sort of Catalog of thinkers that Robin was sort of outlining the positions on at the beginning. They all seem like at first blush they're agreeing on the legitimacy of a distinction between fact and value. Right, and and even in the text, Byrne says, insofar as it goes, I I too agree with Hume and with Weber. But there's a there's a that that's the sort of end of the agreement. Mm-hmm. And the the first place that, that the disagreement is going to bubble up to the surface and become really, really heated is about judgments of fact. Right. Um and so uh if you're if you're sort of listening to this conversation and going, uh, you know, to are we are we to to paraphrase Jurassic Park, are we ever gonna talk about judgments of value on this judgments of value tour? Uh <laughs> the the uh the, the point is that in, if, if you have a, a counterpositional grasp of what knowing is or if you if there are disagreements embedded into your account of judgments of fact, you're not going to make any progress on judgments of value. So the whole the whole point of this dis- discussion is to clarify what's distinctive in Burns approach or Lonergan's approach from from a Hume or a Weber or a Wittgenstein. Um, in order to then to make this pivot and clarify how the distinction between a judgment of fact and a judgment of value in Byrne or Lonergan is going to just be different and not reducible to that distinction as it might emerge in another figure. So okay. judgments of value.
0: Let's uh, what, go. Let's do it. When you so if you're going to make a decision and you can't uh, and, and the decision can't be based on a judgment of fact directly so, right? You're going to make judgments of fact about the situation about which you're deliberating, but you can't come to a judgment of fact to make the decision because you're holding one of the conditions. You can't get a virtually unconditioned. If those decisions aren't going to be arbitrary, if it's not just going to be whim and caprice, there needs to be some intellectual element to the decision. There needs to be some apprehension on which it's based. Now, one element of that apprehension is the apprehension of value in feelings, right? So you, you are, um, you're contemplating some course of action and you're attentive to how that makes you feel. Um, now, the thing is, though, is that you may have a feeling about it that is dread. And that dread is based on what it's going to demand of you to take this course of action. And so it's going to be it's going to be, have to be a kind of uh, unpleasant experience to take this course of action. So you may experience that dread, but there also in the in the sort of global givenness of your feelings, may be another feeling where you have a kind of conviction that even though this is going to be unpleasant, I must do this. I ought to do this. And I think more to the point, it would be good for me to do this. And if you are discerning which is books, uh, Burns' book, right? Ethics of Discernment, if you can discern within your feelings that which is a feeling about the unpleasantness uh, of, the, of the course of action from the apprehension of the course of action's own value, its, it's worthwhileness, then, then you need to make a decision, but you need to make your decision based on a judgment that this feeling apprehends the goodness of this course of action. And so it's like judgments of fact, it's also a yes or no, but it's not a yes or no about whether or not it's a matter of fact. It's a yes or no about whether it being whether it is good, whether it's worthwhile. Um, and so then you make your decision on the basis of your judgment. Yes, this is good. This is a good thing to do. This is a worthwhile course of action. Um, and so. To just rattle through it one more time, right? So there's the feeling that apprehends the value in an intentional way, right? It's an, an intentional response to the value. And the judgment of value is one yes or no, right? About the correctness of the response, right? That Yes, in fact, this feeling I'm having is, is sort of reporting accurately the value of this course of action. And then the decision is, all right, let's do it. Yes, we're, we're, we're going to take this course of action. And so... Um, there's a in it a kind of a judgment of fact about your feelings, right? There's a kind of a sub, there's a kind of um, sub decision that you're a sub judgment you're making about your discernment about your own feelings. But the object, the feelings, is a value that is not yet made a matter of fact. And because you're one of the conditions, you have to discern: yes or no is, am I going to do this, and am I going to do it on the basis of it being good, being worthwhile? So, so what then, John? Are are the um what
3: are the conditions for the judgment that you've apprehended correctly
0: the value that's being uh, carried along in the feeling? That's kind of a question for me, actually. Um, uh, one condition is a, is a sort of, um, you might call it a kind of precondition, that you have a well-formed moral imagination uh, so that you can, uh, so that the sort of, the pattern of your affective experience is, uh, is clear enough, is sort of operating uh, healthily enough that you can trust your feelings in the, in the course of making these decisions. Um, but, but truth be told, I actually, I haven't thought enough about judgments of value as um, having a kind of analogous apprehension of conditions to be able to answer that.
1: I, I think part of it, and this is, the, John, this is... A, John and Eric Mabry and I had a conversation about this out at uh, dinner and beers after uh, the last night of Lonergan on the Edge. I think that at least part of it is the borrowed content that comes from uh, the previous, the the answers to the previous questions. Uh, And the. Whether you've been sufficiently attentive, whether you've been sufficiently intelligent, and uh, whether the reasonableness of your judgment of value actually—sorry, uh, judgment of fact—does in fact reflect what is so uh, is easy to the the radicalness with which uh, Lonergan stresses the integratedness of that two discussions of judgments of value, I think, is easy to overlook.
2: And I think too, there's an element that you, you don't do this alone. Right. And that's the insight that people like, like Covace and Anscom have that, that, that these kind of distinctions that making these judgments and these relations, like, you know, having this relationship where your feelings apprehend fact, you make decision. It comes a decision about value um, or judgment of value are embedded in our common meanings and in our language. And, uh, Walter Kinghorn. I know we're getting low on time. He has a Walter Kinghorn has some work he's done on moral injury, right? People who've had excessive trauma or something such that their their feelings, like the app, and their like as intentional responses, are untrustworthy. Um. And uh, and 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 this came up in a seminar discussion about this. Well, well, one of the ways then you deal with moral injury is the fact that you have also communal. Apprehension, communal disapproval, like and and again, Hume talks about this, right? Communal approval and disapproval of moral things that are bound up in in judgments of value that have been uh, communicated and become part of common meaning. I'm not saying that what is communal is then necessarily always right or should go unquestioned, um, but that that we don't do these things on our own.
3: Yeah, and so maybe well, another. And, uh, Go ahead. Go ahead the image of discernment that Pat's using, of course, is an is a Ignatian one, right? It's, it's the discernment that you, that you acquire through the, interrogate, the self-interrogation of the examine or the exercises, but you also have a spiritual director when you're doing those things, right? You're not, you're not just sort of set adrift on your own, um, but you have someone to help you uh, ask, ask the right questions about your feelings and ask the right questions about your images, etc.
0: Uh, and so, you know, one of these days we can have a conversation about uh, the distinction between major and minor authenticity, yeah. Um, the the authenticity of of the subject in his or her authenticity, um, and then the authenticity or inauthenticity of a tradition and a community, um, and also maybe one of these days we can talk about. I have a kind of thesis that um, the verbum mentis that proceeds from an active of, of insight um, is given as a kind of uh, is given in the same. Uh, experiential mode as affectivity, that, that in fact insights are also a kind of feeling um, that maybe we can, we can talk about another day. Uh, but for now, we got to move on because we're running a little long. Uh, but we don't want to skip Treasures Old and New. And Ryan uh, comes bearing treasure today.
3: So I have uh, two, two books. Um, the first is not even pretending to be a work of theology. It's barely pretending to be a work of philosophy, but it is, uh, it, it is a book that, that everyone ought to read. Um, and the reason I'm recommending it is because a, a, a documentary about its author recently came out that um, has sort of um, brought this person back into popular imagination. And uh, that book is uh, The Death and Life of Great American Cities by Jane Jacobs. Um, Jane Jacobs was, a. I I uh, I, I, I appreciate her for a bunch of reasons, but the, the, the most important of which is she was a stay at home mom who, uh, went to war against, uh, the city planning establishment in New York city, uh, and, and proved that stay at home parents, uh, you know, can make a difference. But at any rate, she, she was a great critic of, um, modernist approaches to urban planning that emerged uh, after the First World War. Um, and she, um, through a painstaking process of observation, through just paying attention to the way the different different elements of the city come to be used and the way those uh, uses um, impinge upon one another and condition one another, she really broke through to the inner structure, the inner ecology of of urban life at mid-century and understood it in a way that Le Corbusier and and other sort of leading lights of modernist urban planning simply didn't. And so she was able to see the problems endemic to uh, particularly the American application of of modernist approaches to urban planning and was able to present a real alternative to them um, that had practical effects both in New York City and in Toronto. Um, but her, her initial work, which grew out of an essay she wrote, uh, is, uh, the death and life of great American cities. Uh, it's sort of classic of, of the genre. Even if you have no interest in architecture or urban design, um, there's, there's, uh, much to be learned from it just about, um, what it is to have a philosophical attitude to the concreteness of, of being alive in a place. Uh, And so I would highly recommend it as a treasure relatively old. Uh, The Treasure New is um, in honor of one of our plenary speakers this past weekend, William Desmond, um, who uh, completed about 10 years ago his trilogy on the metaphysics of the between with a philosophy of God, simply called God and the Between. Um, And it is unique in many respects, but but it's also unique in that it is a philosophy of God, and that's not really a thing that philosophers have done in a while. Um, it's written from a philosophical and not a theological viewpoint, although um, the sort of methodical bounds between the two disciplines in Desmond's thought are porous. Um, but it is uh, it, it, it is an attempt to think through uh, and to actually come to answers about the question of God from within the abstractive viewpoint of philosophy. Uh, It's, it's uh, quite long, quite dense, uh, quite rich, um, not for the faint of heart, but if you're, if you're interested in philosophers who are taking the question of God seriously, not just about um, whether or not God exists and other questions that predominate in philosophy of religion, but, but a real philosophy of God, as distinct from philosophy of religion um it's a a quite timely quite contemporary quite fresh take that still is um in harmony with the the classical tradition but but brings something fundamentally new to the table
0: great ryan thanks um well that's our show for you um You can find us, if you haven't already, on iTunes, where you can subscribe. If you want to rate and review us, Uh, five is a nice number of stars. Um, If you get a chance, we would love, if you have nerd friends, would you tell them about us? Pass along an episode you've enjoyed. Um, Send a link. Tweet about us. Put us on Facebook. Um, Do that thing uh, that people do in their Instagram stories where they tell you what they're listening to. Uh, any of those would be great. Um, we would love to, uh, have more fellow nerds to join our conversation, uh, to ask us questions on Twitter. Those would all be great. If you want to ask us question, questions on Twitter, uh, our Twitter handle is at SystematicPod. If you want to send us an email, we have a Gmail account SystematicallyPodcast at gmail.com. Um, Our music, as always, is track 14 off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. Thank you, Trent Reznor, and your Creative Commons license. Uh, I want to thank Brian Bacek. He does a lot of back-end work to put show notes together, to do uh, audio editing for us, to post our shows up on SoundCloud. Um, So thank you, Brian, for all of your production work on that end. It is my pleasure. Thank you. Um, Well, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. And as always, be attentive.